You're listening to episode 69 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing. Every week we tell stories about writers and discuss writing techniques. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. This week it's all about travel writing. So my worst travel experience was probably when I was trying to go skiing in Austria and the plane instead accidentally landed in Germany. Accidentally? Yes. Yeah, I always think... Did they forget where they w- were going? I think there's a lot of snow apparently oh. in Austria, which was obviously the point. We were going <laughs> I was going to say, it was probably the destination yeah. you had in mind. I always think if you land in the wrong country, that's a bad start. That's not a great start, is no, it? No, but compared to the people that we're talking to on the podcast this week, that was fairly mild. You've had it pretty easy. Yes, I've not nearly been kidnapped or had to cross dangerous borders to try to catch a plane. Sounds very intriguing. Indeed. So we're talking to two travel writers this week. We have Agostina Swibowo from Indonesia and Suzanne Joynson, who is from the UK. And they're talking to Kate Griffin about their experiences of being a travel writer, both in terms of how they have become travel writers and how to pitch for projects and get funding. So if you're interested in that line of work, there's lots of really great tips in here. But then also anecdotes from their years of doing this, both the highs and the lows and the joys and the perils. Yeah, it does sound like there are a few uh, sticky situations that they've been in. Yeah, and they talk a lot about how international politics and Mm. what happens to be going on in the political world can have completely unpredictable impacts on what they're doing. So you can do as much research Mm. as you want before you go off on a trip. But things can change. Yeah, something happens and all of a sudden the political situation and how local people might react to you depending on where you're from can drastically change. So let's hand over to Kate talking to Agostinus and Suzanne. So we're sitting here in the cottage at Dragonhawk and I'm joined by two travel writers, Agostinus Wibor from Indonesia, who's staying with us for three weeks. And Suzanne Joinson from Worthing. <laughs> um, it doesn't have the same ring, does it? No. <laughs> Maybe in Indonesia it would have. Yeah, for me it's the same exotic name for me. <laughs> That's good. I thought we could maybe just start by um, talking about the travel writing that you do and other writing as well and how you got into it. Travel writing sounds like such a glamorous occupation. <laughs> it sounds like one, but uh, in reality, well, it's not as glamorous as what people think. <laughs> oh. It's quite hard work on the road and uh, hard work of writing. Mm. And um, yeah, uh, I think the one of the biggest misconceptions about travel writing is about uh, you go picnic, you go uh, staying in the five-star hotel and you get paid. You have vacation and you get paid. I think many people dream because it sounds like the most glamorous job in the world. But in reality, when you are... As a travel writer, when you do travel, it's it means lots of work. You need lots of preparation. You need lots of uh, research, and then uh, yeah, basically lots of work. <laughs> Not as as fun mm. as what people think, but it is fun in the other way because you will meet new people, you will experience new experiences, and and you will learn many new things that you will never able to learn from books or at home. So that's the beauty of travel writing. And how did you start with travel writing? What what led you on this path? First, I love traveling. Uh, I was uh, I, I lived in China at that time and it was the first time I saw a world that is totally 
different from my uh, home country and suddenly I realized how few I know about how little I know about the world and that motivated me to travel and to uh, live with the people and to understand their culture and and that's how I, I started traveling and I also started with the photography at that time because uh, uh, for me the beauty of the travel is the people and I like to capture the beauty of the people through my photos and because I do uh, human photography it means I need lots of conversation with the people lots of communication because you cannot just take picture and leave mm. and then uh, it's uh, and mostly most of my photos I need to start communicating building rapport and then sometimes for one strong human photos it takes me some days to really get to know with the people and and be really close with them and understand their emotion and and then I can capture their emotion and their feeling in the in the photos then I realized uh, after I do this for quite a long time, uh, I realized that uh, there are so many stories that I get from uh, the people. They usually say that one photo can worth more than 1,000 words. But I think the stories that I get from, from this uh, photography experience is much more than 1,000 words. And that's why I became writers, <laughs> because I can... I can I can um, I can transfer the story. Uh, I can uh, how to say? I can share the stories to 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 more people and and share also the wisdom that I learned from the the people that I met uh, from the road to to the people who who have no exp uh, who have no chance to to experience all of these journeys. Mm. So I don't think I ever thought of myself as a oh, I have never thought of myself as a travel writer with a big capital T yeah. and a W. But I was travelling a lot in the job that I used to have in British Council, and I was writing in hotel rooms, and I was doing that for about six or seven years, and I was trying to process why I was always in these hotel rooms on my own and what, what, how it felt to be on a plane and where I was going and how I felt about home and, and what that meant and all those sorts of things. And then at the same time, I was thinking about doing a PhD on travel writing women from the 20s and 30s and sort of colonial English travel writing and that and looking at those narratives and the complications and the politics around them. So I ended up writing my first novel, which was about that, because I wanted to go into fiction rather than um, doing it as a PhD at that time. So travel and writing combined uh, right from the very beginning for me and always had done, because I think when you write, you automatically go out of yourself and you go on a journey and then you come back. So it just feels like the same process. You travel somewhere and you come back. Um, so they've always been connected. And then writing that first novel involved travel and experiencing that sort of combination of exploration, research, really exciting, going to different places, um, understanding my own relationship between exoticism and orientalism and how I feel about that and colonial history connected to my own personal narrative. Similarly, with my second book, that was linked to um, working in archives in the UK that led back to the Middle East, and I'd been travelling a lot in that region. And so, as a result of that, I naturally started to write travel articles and things. I, in fact, the first time I ventured into that world officially was that my first novel was reviewed by National Geographic in America. Mm. 
and they got this really lovely review in there, which was which was amazing <laughs> by this guy called Don George. Have you heard of him? Yeah, yeah, I met him. Yeah, so he reviewed me, and I didn't know who he was at the time. It turns out he's just the biggest travel writer in the universe, and he he was in charge of like the books column of. Um, National Geographic and he was the editor of the Lonely Planet mm. series of travel writing yeah. anthologies and he contacted me directly and said I really love your book and would you like to write a piece for the anthology that I'm creating so that was the first time I got kind of welcomed into the travel writing world officially and it was called Better Than Fiction so it was inviting a really big name, really Joyce Carol Oates and people like that, yeah. and really big names, and then a mixture of lesser known writers and then some completely new writers. So that was that was a kind of big break. And then after that, the editor of National Geographic contacted me directly and said, Would I like to pitch for something? When I looked, I realised that so for example, in the previous edition there'd been a woman who had gone to Morocco with her dad and, and explored her heritage Morocco you know it was kind mm. of like more straightforward stuff and th the stories that I submitted to Don George who then subsequently invited me to I think I wrote pieces for about five more anthologies for him but they have to have this kind of formula mm. almost yeah. don't yeah. they a narrative arc a narrative arc and it's really, for the American publications I've found anyway, yeah. it's relatively simplistic. It's kind of like I go to this place and I yeah. explore something and I see something then I change a little bit and then I come back and yeah. it's yeah. the formula, yeah. doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Once you know the formula, yeah. that's fine. I mean, I cracked the formula for the short... As a result of that, I learned, okay, this is kind of classic travel writing and then this is the sort of travel writing I'm doing in my novels and fiction mm -hmm. crossover but both are equally valid mm -hmm. there's no sort of better or yeah. worse I think yeah. it, it, no sort of quality issues it's just what it is and then after that I started to explore more straightforward broadsheet type mm -hmm. um, travel writing so pitching to an editor in the UK putting my idea to them and then um, in the UK, there's a system which is very different from American, I don't know about, where you line up a PR company to um, cover the cost of your trip, and then you write the piece for, so for example, the Times, if you write a piece for the Times, the editor says, yes, I'd like that piece, you then speak to the PR company of the people who organise the trip, the hotels and the place, they arrange that for you. And then you go and then you write about it. So that's the UK system, which is very much based on a system of you say nice things about us because we've paid your flight <laughs> yeah. and you get paid. So yeah. there's that type mm. of journalism, which is great. Yeah. But what happened was the New York Times, I spoke to the New York Times about going to Argentina and they agreed and I got the commission because I'd been writing reviews, book reviews for them. So I had like one in. So it was also really exciting. I was like, oh my God, going to Argentina. And they said, oh, have you, have you been anywhere where you've been sponsored or a travel company has paid for you? And I was like, um, oh, pretty much everywhere. <laughs> I was like, is there an issue? Oh, uh, yeah. For the New York Times and in America, travel writing, we don't have that system. And you have to prove that all the travel writing you've done for the last three years has not been covered cool. by one of the PR companies. Oh, this is a oh. completely different system. Mm -hmm. In fact, so then I emailed another editor on New York Times and said, 
is this the case? Like, because that's like mm-hmm. the opposite of how mm-hmm. it works over here and how all the travel journalists and mm-hmm. all the travel editors yeah. work and just how the whole thing is set up. And she said, yeah, you can't, you can't, mm-hmm. you can't even get, you can't even have a bus, you can't even have a bus ticket covered by anybody because the idea is that your journalism is... Yeah. Um, Objectively. Yeah. yeah. So that was a, that was a Ooh. lesson as well. So I was like, oh, there went my lovely Argentinian. <laughs> <laughs> Agustinus, you've worked for the Chinese National Geographic, haven't you? Yeah. Uh, How do you go about getting your assignments? Do you have similar setups to as Susie has described, or is there a different way yeah, of getting um, them? Because I spent like three years in Afghanistan and I visited um, uh, Central Asia countries many times, and I uh, happened to write a book on uh, Central Asian borders. And um, at these years, China is trying to build the new Silk Road program. So mm-hmm. they are very much starting to focus on their Central Asian neighbors. And for them, Central Asia is such a close area, but also exotic at the same time, because uh, not many Chinese visited them, not many Chinese journalists, and not many Chinese experts uh, know much about these countries. And um, I... I have some contacts before with the Chinese National Geographic magazine. So when they were trying to uh, make a big project on uh, Central Asian uh, Central Asian edition, they invited me, and then uh, uh, I give them like a quite a crash course about <laughs> about Central Asia in uh, in their office in Beijing, and then they were surprised because my uh, explanation was really taken from the road. I lived uh, I traveled more about in total more than one year in Central Asia. So really like my my information about Central Asia is from the people's daily life and then the local politics and and uh, the the issue or uh, their history and and uh, the editors in the national Chinese National Geography at that time they were surprised because all of my explanations were very much different from what was given by the professors from the prominent universities there. So they said like, okay, uh, are you interested if you're doing uh, assignment for us? So they gave me assignment on uh, Tajikistan and Afghanistan. Actually, Afghanistan because I have done before and I've lived in Afghanistan for quite long. But in Tajikistan uh, issue, they were interested. Uh, with my research on uh, borders and identity. So they asked me to go to the enclaves in Central Asia because enclave is such a unique uh, phenomena in our border, uh, uh, in, in countries' borders because enclave means like an area of one country is completely uh, detached from the country and then mm-hmm. completely surrounded by another country. Mm-hmm. So it's like an island. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, uh, I went because enclave is mostly uh, close for foreigners, but I could speak the local mm-hmm. language, so I can, mean, uh, I can smuggle myself in. So mm-hmm. they they really uh, they really wish that I can do this assignment for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did they pay all your travel fees? They paid all mm-hmm. of the travels, including mm-hmm. all of the yeah the hotels and accommodations and uh, transport from Indonesia to Central Asia. Interesting. Think, yeah. But so, like Susie, your travel mm-hmm. writing came out of your yeah. travels for full-length books, yeah. except you've been writing non-fiction, haven't you, rather than fiction? Yeah, I write totally non-fiction, and it's all based on my uh, travels. And at the beginning, I didn't plan to write books. I was mm. just uh, 
I was just graduated from a university in China and then I, I wanted to be journalist but I studied computer science. So I think like the best way to study journalism is just to study from the road. So I decided to start traveling uh, an overland trip from Beijing and I planned to go all the way to South Africa with uh, $2,000 in my pocket. I was very young at that time and I, I felt already I was the richest man on the world. I had all of this money and then I had all the time in the world and I thought I would travel for the money would last me for five years and I could reach South Africa but yeah I was too optimistic so <laughs> uh, well the money lasts for one year and seven months and um, I I was uh, have been in eleven countries, mostly in Central, uh, China, China, and then Nepal, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, and Central Asian countries. Then I ended up with no money left, so I went back to Afghanistan and I found job as a journalist there, as a photojournalist, which gave me opportunity to travel to much uh, to to more deeper interiors of the country, and. And after that, um, I I contemplated on the journey. I had a I had a travel blog at that time. A blog that uh, like my diary, uh, my experience on the road, and and one Indonesian uh, media, uh, the biggest newspaper in Indonesia, saw this blog, and then they wanted to make an online version. So they 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 give a special column for me. So mm-hmm. I translated all of my blog into into Indonesian because I wrote in English. And and it was published daily in, in their website and it became very popular. And I never pitched to any publishers at that time. So public because of my the popularity of the of the column, the travel column in, in this uh, newspaper, many publishers offered me to publish the book. So it's how I became uh, I published my stories as book and I have published three books. My first book is about Afghanistan, uh, how life in the war zone, the reality of war life, because uh, we know Afghanistan is simply as war zone with poverty, but the reality like people are living, there are many happy faces in Afghanistan, and then also history, and then uh, how the people deal with this difficulty of life. So I I, I started, really, I, I focused more on the daily life of the people, and it was quite controversial as well in Afghanistan, because I I also showed, as a non-Muslim writer, I also write about the reality of, of people living with the Sharia law. Uh, and yeah, it was quite controversial, but it, I, it was surprisingly, yeah, it has a good reception in Indonesia. And my second book is about Central Asian countries. Uh, it's called Borderlines, uh, because I travel from border to border among the countries and to understand how the borders of this country were created because this country never existed before the 20th century and the borders were completely drawn by uh, Stalin and so it was very artificial and but these artificial borderlines define the artificial nations and these artificial nations now became the real nations Mm -hmm. so I was interested how the borderlines define the people and why we have to be separated by the borders and and what is the most dangerous borders is the physical borders or the border in your mind so by traveling to through the borders of every countries i brought the readers to to contemplate about their own borders and uh, my third book is kind of a memoir combined with travel writing so uh, after 10 years leaving home I have to go. I have to go home. Like Susie said, the travel writings about going and coming back, and because when you, when you go home, you will realize you will see the home from from different perspective, and 
the reality for me of home at that time was quite painful because I, when I was traveling, I keep imagining that my home, my family will be alright, they will be living a good life, but in reality, uh, they are not, they were not, and my mother uh, had uh, cancer at that time, and it was her last few weeks, actually, because it was already very, very serious. So I could not do anything, but I just sat next to my mom, who who had never, almost never leave the uh, her house in Indonesia. So I just sat next to my mom, and I took my diary, uh, and then I, I read the stories from the faraway places to my mom. It's like the 1001 story, like I, I tell one one story in hope that I can prolong the life of my mom for one day. It was originally thought like just taking my mom in, the, in a journey, a, a storytelling journey. But then uh, it turned out that my mom started to open up herself, started to open up about her childhood, about her dreams, about her love, about her spiritual life about her understanding about life itself. So it's becoming like a combination uh, between the journey of son, which is very physical, and then the journey of a mom, which is very spiritual. So by the sharing stories each other, we learn together about how we understand life and journey. And this book is available in English, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's already um, translated in, Indone in English by an Indonesian publisher. But we have not got any uh, English publishers yet, mm. so it's still only available in Indonesia. Mm. And this book is uh, going to be made as a movie soon. So, oh, yeah. so it'll be a film in Indonesia. Yeah, it will be filmed in Indonesia. Mm. It has bought, uh, as the, the rights has been bought by an Indonesian production house. Yeah. Susie, I wanted mm. to ask you, what was your most difficult or challenging situation you found yourself in with travel writing you know sometimes I've ended up in places that feel really dangerous and edgy because of some political situation or tension or uprising and I can feel very physically vulnerable but worse than that I think is the hardest travel for me has been leaving my kids behind when I was little or balancing travel writing with motherhood mm. so for example about three or four times I've been in cities where there's been a big feeling of unrest. So, Syndrome. Yes. <laughs> that what you were leaving? Yeah. I, I, yes, I was in um, Kashi, Urumqi, when, uh, in, in China when um, the plane landed and the entire airport was full of soldiers. And I was thinking, I'm not sure this is normal. <laughs> <laughs> and then by the time I got to Kashgar, it was... Um, completely in lockdown there was no internet in the entire mm. province and no international phone calls so I couldn't contact home or phone or do anything so I knew something was happening but I couldn't figure out what it was so I phoned the British embassy and they phoned me back at the hotel and they were they were going where are you <laughs> where oh my god <laughs> and then um then a guy turned and knocked on my door and said you have to leave immediately. Um, but I can get a flight out for three days. So I was in this weird scenario where I was in this hotel and I thought, well, I might as well go for a walk because what we're going to do, just sit here like trembling. There's no point, is there? I mean, there were like loudspeakers everywhere and stuff. So I did go for a bit of a walk. I didn't go into the mosque area or anything like that. I was in Jerusalem and there was a very heavy uprising and also Jordan as well when the whole airports were in shutdown and stuff. But 
more tricky than that was was going on trips where I left my kids when they were teeny because I couldn't figure out whether it was better to take them with me on like a 12, 14 hour trip and drag them around or leave them. And I had this instinct that, to keep them safe and at mm. home. And I thought, well, if I'm in a dangerous situation, at least they're safe. But probably they would have liked coming, maybe. Maybe I... But it's funny, you never know how you're going to handle mm. things. Like, I know some women or mums who, who would just sling their baby on the back and take them with them and the baby's just with their mum so they feel okay. But my instinct was very much to keep them mm. at home. So perhaps I did that a bit too much. <clears throat> and so I was in... I'd be in places and then I'd suddenly have like a very physical, acute feeling that I'd left them behind. I wasn't doing it loads. It was like twice a year or something. It was fine. And then if I rationalised it, I was being paid for it. It's a job. You know, some people, and if you're a nurse, you go, you leave your baby or your tiny child for eight hours a day when you go on your shift. I wasn't doing that, but then I would go away for a week sort of thing. It's just a different way. And I would, and as the kids got bigger, I could articulate to them what I'm doing, include them in it a bit more, explain it to them. But I really struggled with that. And so sometimes in hotel rooms or in places, like when I was researching my second book in Jerusalem, I, I was staying in this Ottoman palace and I just would suddenly be like, oh God, it's like I'd left my leg behind mm. or my arm behind or something like that. Mm. Or even not so long ago, um, I was in China being a writer in residence at Raffles and my husband was taking the kids to Paris, Disneyland, and it was when the Backland terrorism mm. thing happened. So he was driving into Paris as that was happening, but I was in a hotel in, uh, I was waking up in Beijing, just about to get flight home. So when you feel like the, those things, that could be, I found that harder in a way than political unrest. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Agustina? What's been the most difficult situation for you connected with travel writing? Maybe the scariest thing that I have experienced was I almost got kidnapped uh, when because I always travel with budget. At that time, I have no no assignment. Everything is from my own budget. So I am very much budget conscious when I travel. <laughs> so when in Afghanistan, the best advice is not to take random taxi from the road. Mm-hmm. But because I think from taking random taxi, I can save $2. So yeah. I took, it was midnight. So I was just, uh, I, I was invited to a dinner with my in my friend's house. And then I decided to take a taxi uh, from the street. Uh, just to save two dollars and then the taxi driver uh, just drove and then um, he drove to to the outskirts of Kabul and Kabul back then I think uh, still there was no electricity at all so the city was totally black but I knew it was going to to the to the to the direction of the mountains and at that time it was very common um, that taxi drivers would kidnap a foreigners mm-hmm. and then would uh, sell the foreigners to uh, organizations like Taliban or other militias, mm-hmm. and then the, they would extort uh, money from the uh, the victims' uh, embassy. So mm-hmm. that is how the uh, the modus uh, usually at that time. So I was quite scared because the the driver asked me for hundred dollars, and then I, I didn't have the money, but I keep insisting that I was. Indonesian and Indonesia is a good friend of Afghanistan mm. and then I keep insisting that I was Muslim that mm. I'm not but I could pretend as mm. one mm. so I 
read uh, some of the Islamic prayers mm-hmm. again and again and again to him yeah. until he was really fed up with me and then he said shut up after you give me the money you I will become Muslim again <laughs> <laughs> because so being Muslim means being good yeah. so Uh, and then I said, yeah, I will give you the money, but please first uh, drop me to my place first because I have the money there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think I, was, I, I didn't believe that he, he suddenly uh, drove back the, uh, the car, mm-hmm. how to say, like make so a U-turn. Yes. And then he was driving to, uh, to the city center again. Mm-hmm. And I knew because I was staying near the Ministry of uh, Interior in Kabul and I knew that there are 24 hours, there are many police there. So mm. when it was getting close to the Ministry, I started to open the, the door, but the door was not <laughs> easy to open and the man grabbed my, my legs. And then when it's open, I just jump from the car. And then it was winter and was like rolling on the snow. And from the other direction, there was another car passing and I almost get hit by the other car. It was really, yeah, it was, it, and, and then when I, I was screaming and, and then the, all the, the soldiers and the police came. And then uh, they asked me what happened. And then I said I was almost kidnapped, but the taxi already disappeared. But... This experience also taught me a deeper layer about living in a war zone because right after that, I make a phone call to my Afghan friend. It was maybe at two o'clock in the morning already. So I made a phone call to my Afghan friend and then I was sobbing like, you know what happened? I almost died and blah, blah, blah. And then my friend was just like very calm, listening. And then what he said just, It happens, <laughs> and uh, by the way, did you pay the uh, the driver? If you don't, it was you who robbed the driver. <laughs> you you got a free city tour in the middle of the night. <laughs> so suddenly, I, I I laughed, and then I learned this is how people survive in war zone. You have to make fun. You have to be able to laugh uh, at yourself. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to survive. Yeah, the thing with taxis is you do really surrender yourself to them at some point, don't yeah. you? Yeah. yeah, I was. Uh, this experience made me quite traumatic with taxi. Yeah. After two yeah. years, I could not take taxi yeah. at all in other countries. I had a scary one with it in Russia. Were yeah. you there? Quite possibly. <laughs> I had um, a taxi driver who I was going to go from the Novotel to the yeah. like a ten minute drive from yeah. one big hotel to another. Yeah. And I'd been there a few days, so I slightly got my head around the yeah. bearings, and I knew he was going the wrong. He was going the wrong way straight away, and then he was driving off somehow. So I was yeah. like, oh. yeah. but then he got really scary. He locked all the doors and just yeah. kept going, and they wouldn't yeah. answer me. Oh. And then he just drove and drove and drove and drove and drove, and pulled up outside a nightclub, <laughs> and then got out and didn't say anything. <laughs> Stood with another guy and started smoking. Oh. No explanation, nothing. Oh. And I oh. just was like, and I just was like, I don't know whether to stay in the car, or get out of the car. I just don't know what to do. <laughs> so I got so. out of the car because I just did not like his vibe. And then yeah. I just walked off, found a main yeah. road and flagged down a taxi yeah. and was just completely lucky. that yeah. I think it was an official, because they had official taxis by then, didn't they? Yeah. It was an official taxi, actually. So it was really expensive. Yeah. But, but you got back to your I got vision. back, yeah. yeah. But, you know... Yes, yeah. with some ta- yeah. in in when when Tony Blair was bombing yeah. Iraq, so I was in the Middle East a lot around then, and 
that whole period. So I used to pretend, was I saying this to you the other day? I used to yeah. pretend that I was Irish in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if they have, um, in Cairo, they used yeah. to have Bin Laden at, at that time yeah. in the front of their yeah. Yeah. windscreens. <laughs> so you get everything really English, you go, yeah. I'm Irish! <laughs> so that was my survival strategy. Yeah. Yeah. But then not long ago, in 2016, I was in Palestine yeah. and um, and I was in Nablus, so yeah. in the Palestinian territory, yeah. and um, something horrific had happened and all the roads were blocked yeah. and the taxi driver was, was only allowed to drive to the edge of the Palestinian territory and then a Israeli uh, licensed... Yeah tax driver yeah. is going to pick me up at this point in the road because yeah. the Palestinian guy wasn't allowed to drive me out yeah. of that bit. So there was this <laughs> there was this arrangement where I'd been passed from one taxi to another on my own <laughs> in the middle of the <laughs> and um but it all went horribly wrong yeah. because of this stuff that was happening on the roads. Yeah. And so uh, the guy, the taxi driver said <clears throat> He couldn't speak English and I couldn't really speak to him, but he was, I was on the phone to yeah. the other guy who I was going to connect with. And he said, you've just got to trust him. Yeah. He's going to take you another way yeah. and I'll meet you. I can't, we can't do what we've got to do. And it's going to take another 40 minutes. It was, it was to get my yeah. plane as well, for mm. added stress. <laughs> and um, so he drove me into the wilds uh-huh. of the really <laughs> like, <laughs> like scrap yards yeah. and nothing. And I was just like... If someone wants to hear that, <laughs> there is nothing that yeah. I was so yeah. vulnerable. Yeah. But the guy was really lovely, and he just took me on this big winding thing to avoid mm. everything. And um, and then I ended up meeting up with the other guy somewhere. Yeah. And you got, yeah. you got your plane. You got your plane. But then um, Elizabeth White always used to be very cavalier about kidnapping in mm. Yemen. Yeah. Well, it does happen, she used to say, but yeah. she was the director of the British Council. Um, it does happen, but they generally give you tea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to try that out. It's a good opportunity. Be nice to you. It's a good opportunity to practice your Arabic. Yes, yeah. it's amazing yes. that how the uh, international politics always affect to our travel. I think yes. like one of the. So this is a good tip for yeah. any aspiring travel writers: is do your research. Do your research. You <laughs> Yes. No way. Be you nice are. to yeah. taxi drivers. Be nice to taxi drivers. And yes, yeah, do your research. Yeah. 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 And yeah, if you so end up on the wrong side of the border, because on that yeah. same journey, yeah. I then had to come out through the West Bank into Israel yeah. and I had to go through that border mm-hmm. in which the Israeli guards did not like me mm-hmm. because I'd been to the West Bank. So they were pretty hostile. And they went through my bags and broke all my stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then when I got to the airport, I didn't want to tell them that I'd been to the West Bank mm. or in the Palestinian territory. Yeah. So when they said, where have you been? What have you been doing? I was like, I've had a happy holiday looking yeah. at all the yeah. um, looking at all the Christian sites. Yeah. So I was like lying to the official. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so that was quite traumatic. Yeah. Well, how about... Um, happy favourite experiences of travel writing because I think we've probably successfully got the message across that it's not all all glamour but you know are there good moments as well good moments 
you will find uh, families here and there for me like because I lost both of my parents and then uh, it was quite hard for me uh, to travel actually uh, because of all of the uh, effect of this losing but uh, again traveling also changed again my, my perspective of life because for example when I was traveling to Suriname in South America recently uh, to research on the Japanese diaspora there. I I was staying with a family, uh, a, a lady who who just lost her son. And then because we just lost people that we loved recently, so we have so much things that we can share about. So every day we share out the stories and every day we meditate together. So we became very, very close. So the uh, I stayed, I ended up staying in her house for two months. She, she became like my own mother and I became like her son. Mm. So this kind of very deep connection. We, we started as totally strangers. It just happened like we, I was introduced by someone because I came to Suriname. It's a totally new country for me. And this lady happened to be, her ancestors were Japanese. And I also came from the island of Java. So sometimes we, we could talk in the Japanese language. It's amazing. Like Suriname is more than 15,000 kilometers away from Java. And I can speak Japanese. It's not even Indonesian language, it's a local language, Japanese. And the people in Suriname still preserve the tradition in Java like 100 years ago. So it's kind of like coming home is quite exotic, but it's quite homey at the same time. And with this family, I became like very close and she introduced me to the big family of of hers, we every week we go together, gardening together, so it's becoming like a family matters. And this happened in 2016, and even until today, we still maintain relationship like mother and son. So I keep visiting her in um, in Holland, and sometimes she visited me because she, uh, she Indonesia may be too far for them, but we sometimes we met together in Singapore, for example. Still, we maintain this kind of relationship, and and for me, it's it's the amazing side because it's not only to see the exoticism mm-hmm. uh, at the end travel will will help you to see your your inner side yourself your life your your understanding of life of family of home so it's i think that's the beauty of travel that uh, it cannot be replaced by anything else mm-hmm. well i think if you're lucky enough to be traveling and sort of working you know like writing or researching mm-hmm. something or meeting colleagues or somehow connecting with people who are from the place of family or work environment where you get taken into the world of the place a bit rather than just staying on a tourist side of things then all these magical you have these magical moments where there's so many I can't I think when I went to Syria for one of the first times maybe I ended up with these filmmakers because of the long series of events as a filmmaker and the guy was a director and I got invited to their studio where they were showing the cut of their film before it had been edited and there was about six people in there so it was like a little private viewing so I watched this film and then learned so much about what it was they were trying to do they trained in Moscow for a film uh, university in Moscow so they have quite strong Russian influence and it was just amazing to be in on that conversation they were all analyzed, they were smoking heavily they were like this cloud there was like loads of Arabic coffee mm. it was really intense and what I learned was like 
how the censorship stuff was working, how the funding was working, how they were trying to convey the ideas. There was this huge debate around how, how long it was and how they could shorten. They had all these, it was about a relationship, but it was also about loads of other things. And, you know, just the opportunity to be in that kind of space, which was just, um, you, you know, you could never really, it was like a complete privilege and... Um, it's those kind of moments where you can go under and in a bit further, which I personally mm-hmm. find is usually connected to some kind of working environment. Um, just amazing. Well, thank you both very much for this great exploration of travel writing, both you and Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Agostinus and Suzanne for chatting to us. If you've got any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're also on Facebook if you search for National Centre for Writing, or you can email us info at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter by visiting nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. And if you want to get in touch with us personally, you can find me on Twitter at Steph X McKenna. And Simon? I'm on Twitter at Tarnimus. If you're taking part in the NaNoWriMo challenge this month, then do check out the National Centre for Writing's Twitter channel because we're putting out prompts every day to help you keep writing and get rid of that annoying writer's block. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast as it helps other people to find it. Thanks again, keep writing and we will catch you on the next episode. Mm